Good afternoon, everybody. It's really good to be able to spend uh, another session looking at this uh, series that we've been working thro through um, about wisdom uh, and looking into the Old Testament book of Proverbs. If you read Proverbs, you'll find that there isn't a very clear narrative or structure. It doesn't take you on a journey. It, it's actually a combination of many thoughtful insights, um, wisdom shaped by God's power and word, uh, and really preparing us, as we've seen, for the fulfillment of wisdom, which we see in Jesus. And it was really helpful, uh, the reading that Matt brought for us a little bit earlier, which spoke of Jesus, uh, the wisdom of God. I'm so thankful for that. We're going to be thinking this afternoon uh, about the wisdom of knowing what saves. That's the subject. Uh, and the first thing I want to just reflect on is uh, we're thinking about this 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 uh, idea this afternoon under a, a number of whens. So the first when I just want us to pause and think about for a few minutes as we open up is when patterns are broken. There is a huge amount of concern and it's it's understandable and it's incredibly valid concern uh, about what uh, what we see as we come out of this past year of disruption. Concerns around physical health, um, concerns around mental health, social anxiety, concerns around education. Concerns about what might happen to us as a people as we move forward uh, from this, um, I guess, world changing experience. But when we just step back from a for a moment from our fears and our concerns around those different areas, which are very valid, one of the things that I think is really clear and really evident is that the driver for all of those concerns is that some of our patterns of life have been broken. Things that we used to do have been broken. We haven't been able to meet. And so we end up with the threat of social anxiety. We haven't been able to engage uh, with others. And so our concerns are raised around mental health. We haven't been able to be educated in the way that we would normally would. The pattern of education has been broken. Uh, and so we should be concerned about that. The pattern of our ability to be active perhaps has been broken. And so we're concerned about physical health. The pattern that we've created for ourselves over life for many, many years has been broken and it results in fear and concern as we move forward. One of the things that I want us to really think about this afternoon is to consider the issue that there are patterns for our spiritual well-being. They've been established by God down through the millennia, taking his people on a journey. We are described as the church, the gathered community of God's people, for a reason. Because the pattern of gathering is part of God's purpose. That pattern of gathering is part of his means for us 
to be well spiritually. Now, the reality is that we've spent a year where that pattern has been broken. And so we should not be surprised that there is a a real and tangible threat to our spiritual well-being. And it's really important that as we move forward over these next months and through into the next years that we either for the first time, perhaps for some of us, establish healthy patterns of spiritual life, or maybe for other, others of us, it's re-establishing patterns of life that we once lived that protected our spiritual well-being. I'm also very aware that for some people it has been a, a time of great spiritual growth and that's just tremendous to be able to use this environment whether you're live listening to us or whether you're on catch-up to be able to use this environment to reach people literally across the globe is 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 a tremendous thing but it is not comparable to being able to be to be together and in a strange way our proverbs proverb today points to the very core of our spiritual well-being and it's proverbs 18 and verse 10 the name of the lord is a fortified tower the righteous run to it and are safe that doesn't on the face of it immediately jump out does it uh, about the critical nature of our spiritual well-being but i think it actually is right at the very heart of our spiritual well-being because it closes with uh, the word safe this particular word the english word safe is uh, apparently it's a 13th century word derived from the old french word for sof digging in a little bit into that word it's got a beautiful meaning originally it means protected watched over and assured of salvation isn't that a brilliant description all of those ways of thinking about the word safe elevates it really from the idea of being able to temporarily find protection in a tower to the really deep personal and essential element of what the Christian faith is, which is that we are protected, we are watched over, and we are assured of salvation. I think if we are able to think about that, expand and build on that idea, if we can allow that to arise in our thinking, bigger than the fears of physical or mental health or social anxiety, or education, if we are able to dwell on the idea that we are protected, watched over, and assured of salvation, we will be better equipped to deal with the threat of concerns of physical, mental health, social anxiety, and education, all of the fears that rise up at this point. Do you see in that connection how essential, therefore, our spiritual well-being is to our living day to day, a life which Jesus promised us 
a life which is uh, to the full with an abundance of blessing if we know that we are protected watched over and assured of salvation it changes everything in our perspective of life so when we forget what we need when we forget what we need we are under threat but being reminded through this little proverb we're reminded of our need of salvation but what's the proverb actually saying because it's saying a lot more let's very often you can work out what something is saying in a sentence by by working backwards so let's start off at the very end of the sentence the idea of being safe assured of salvation what this proverb is saying to us is there is a need to be saved it's so simple but it's right at the very heart of the whole of the message of the Bible. It starts at the very beginning of the Bible with humanity's rejection of God. And it's concluded at the end of the Bible with a restored relationship for those who trust in God with our creator. And it is rooted in the idea that we have to be saved. That's the first thing that we say, we see. But the second thing that we see moving backwards through the sentence is this idea that it is a particular category of people who will find that salvation. Look at what it says. Um, the righteous run to it. It's the righteous who find salvation. That is incredible. Because we don't know, we don't feel, we don't experience a sense of righteousness in our nature. And yet this proverb is telling us that the ones who find salvation are the righteous. We really need to think about that. We need to come back to it and understand how does that work? That we might be righteous in order to find salvation. But it begins with the foundation and the source of that salvation. And at the beginning of the sentence, we see this. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. That's a fantastic description, isn't it? A fortified tower. In the ancient world, um, threat from uh, oppressors, from enemy was always uh, protected against with very physical things. We're, we're entering in, into a world where, where warfare is very different and, and cyber warfare is the latest frontier of, of enemy behavior. Uh, and now we see uh, all sorts of terrible things going on through that uh, pathway. But, but at the very heart of it, physical protection requires physical protect uh, the, the to be protected physically requires physical protection and we see here the lord is described to the in the ancient world as a fortified tower he he is the kind of protection it's fortified solid uh unassailable but it's a tower as well 
So it takes you out of reach of those who might threaten you. The Lord is, the Lord is that fortified tower. So if we work it backwards, we see our need of salvation and the assurance of salvation, which is found by the righteous in the Lord. We're secured in God. How does this work and how do we see this working out? How can we come to terms with it and how can we engage with it? Well, we've seen when patterns are broken. We've seen when we forget what we need. But now let's think about when we realize our need. And to just think for a few minutes on that text that uh, Matt read for us from Mark chapter 10. It's a really simple account about a man named Bartimaeus. And we see that Jesus has arrived in Jericho uh, and his disciples are walking uh, out of the city, leaving the city with a huge crowd around them. It says that they were leaving surrounded with a large crowd. Uh, at the side of the road, very often uh, at one of the city gates, right on the kind of the pathway of traffic, if you like, was somebody who was begging. His name was Bartimaeus. Bar meaning the son of, and Timaeus meaning that he was the son of Timaeus. And he heard something. He didn't see it. He would have been aware of the crowds, no doubt. His hearing sensation would have been um, and enhanced with his loss of sight. He, he knew that there was something incredible going on. And then he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. And his response is extraordinary. It's one of those moments where we see the sheer incomparable compassion of Jesus towards the excluded. Here we see this man ignored by the crowd, walked past, as though he didn't even exist. But he shouts out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Here is a man who in that moment realized his need. But he realized it in a moment where Jesus was present and he believed that it was possible that this person might be able to save him from his condition. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The next thing that we see in the compassion of Jesus is the astounding contrast between the dispassionate behavior of the crowds and the ability and desire and willingness of Jesus to hear the plea of one blind beggar. Many rebuked Bartimaeus, were told. In fact, so much so that in a crowd of people, with a large number of people following Jesus, they tell him, they shout at him, they rebuke him to be quiet. That seems fascinating, doesn't it? Why, why would they tell this man to be quiet? Is he an embarrassment for them? 
does he bring shame on the city of Jericho because it it lowered the standard? We're not really clear, but as far as the crowd is concerned, they want him shut up, ignored, excluded. And yet we see the compassion of Jesus who hears him when he shouts all the louder, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. The response of the crowd around Bartimaeus is, uh, cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. <laughs> it seems as though there was a bit of a moment where they thought something interesting might go on here. I don't think there was compassion towards Bartimaeus. It was almost a cheer up and shut up, I think. And he's brought to Jesus. Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see. How simple. What do you want me to do? I want to see. And Jesus heals him of his blindness. It's a very compassionate moment, an insight into the heart of Jesus towards the excluded, towards those who are lost, towards those who need to be saved. But it is also absolutely soaked in theological significance. It's soaked in the storyline of the Bible. The first thing we see is this, that Bartimaeus recognizes the true nature of Jesus because he uses the phrase, son of David. Son of David, this powerful emblem, this hope of the one who has been promised throughout the writing of the Jewish people, throughout the Old Testament. This idea that the, the King David, this heroic, uh, God-fearing pinnacle, really, of the history of the Jewish people might be recreated again. And Bartimaeus sees that promise and sees Jesus as the fulfillment of that promise. And so he says to Jesus, he addresses Jesus as son of David, have mercy on me. The second key point is that in his absolute hopelessness, he looks to Jesus as his only help. If there's one storyline weaving its way through the Bible again and again and again, we see that idea that in utter hopelessness, there is that moment of turning to God as the only hope, as the only way, as the only point of salvation. And that's key for us as well, isn't it? As we face the the unfolding of this um, normalizing into a new way of society, uh, recovering from, from this horrific pandemic, with all of the fears that we might experience, it's really important for us to remember, that firstly, our need of salvation. But secondly, to know that looking to Jesus is the very 
source of our ultimate hope. Thirdly, we see this. Yes, he is saved, he is healed, he is made to see. But the reason that he is made to see, according to Jesus, is not because of the miraculous power of Jesus, although it is. It's not because of his desire and willingness to call out to Jesus, although it is. The reason that we see Jesus says he is healed is in verse 52. Your faith has healed you. That idea floods the whole of the storyline of the Bible. Way back in Genesis, Abraham, at the point where he is called to sacrifice his son, considers what God is asking him to do. And in chapter 15 and verse 6, it says this, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, that is really important when we think about our first proverb. What did we say? That those who find salvation, those who find safety in God are the righteous. And then way back in Genesis, we see that righteousness, according to Genesis 15 verse 6 and the word of God there, is that Abraham was considered righteous because he believed the Lord. Paul picks up on just that idea in Romans chapter 4 and verse 3 when he reminds the church in Rome, he says this, what does scripture say? And he quotes Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. He kind of reinforces the whole idea. Thousands of years later, he says, remember what scripture says. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Do you know that is the best news that we can hear? Because it sounds as though, according to Proverbs, that the only way that we can be safe is by being righteous. And if that's the case, I don't know about you, but I know me really well. If the only way we can be safe is by being righteous, meeting God's standards, meeting the demands of a perfect life, a righteous life that God outlines, if we are dependent on that, then I'm in trouble in terms of being saved. But if righteousness is credited to us by having faith in God, then we've all got hope. That's how it works. That is the great news of the gospel. Faith in Jesus means that we are credited with righteousness. You know, all of those occasions where you read the Bible, particularly parts of the New Testament, and you see the demands on how we should live. And we look at it and we consider that and we feel overwhelmed by the demands of righteousness that we're called to meet. The hope that we've got in the good news of Jesus is this. 
that we meet those standards of righteousness by having faith in Jesus Christ. By trusting in him. How does that work? How does God say that that works? He says that if you trust in my son, if you believe in my son, if you place your hope in my son, his success becomes your success. And your failure, he bears. Martin Luther called it the great exchange. But at a point in our history where we are under we are in danger of forgetting the patterns of spiritual life which sustain our spiritual well-being. Let's start by reminding ourselves of our need to be saved, of the fact that we are counted righteous by having faith in Jesus, and that it is faith in God that saves us. So when we realize our need, we see that there is hope. But there's one more where, and it's this. And we're kind of on the journey towards seeing it. And it's this, when we understand grace. This is the final step of hope, I think. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's faith by which you are saved. But the way in which you have that faith is the grace of God working in you. God's grace, God's willingness to give to you what you do not deserve. Give to me what I do not deserve. Pour out on me the riches of his blessing, which are completely undeserved. That is grace. It's grace that makes me have faith in the first place. It's grace that opens our eyes to seeing Jesus as a hope. We looked at the idea of the compassion of Jesus towards Bartimaeus. And it's heartwarming. But you know, when we think of the grace of God to pour out his blessing on us, when we don't deserve it, to allow faith to stir up in our hearts, when we are unable to achieve it ourselves, we see the compassion of God in another in another way, in a way which is so much more personal. Just so that we don't think that we can generate that faith ourselves. Paul carries on in Ephesians 2 and verse 8. He says, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. I want to encourage you over these next weeks and months. When we face sensitivity, concern about all of those life perspectives, as we address another tremendous shift in our patterns of behavior, I want to encourage you to, to re-engage in the patterns of spiritual well-being that God has laid out for us. God, in his kindness, 
has reached out to us in Jesus and provided for us the foundation of faith and hope, which means that we can be credited with righteousness that we don't deserve. And allow that hope to wash over your heart and mind in such a way that concerns over physical decline, mental breakdown, anxiety, symptoms that are totally understandable, but allow them to diminish in the great news of the hope that we have in Jesus. Because this is wisdom, knowing what saves.